Hello and welcome to How to Be an Artist, a new podcast brought to you by Soho House. My name's Kate Bryan and I'm the head of collections for Soho House and over this series I'll be talking to a global lineup of influential contemporary artists who all feature in our art collection. We'll be considering what it takes to be an artist and especially what it means right now. In this episode, I'm honored to be joined by Xaviera Simmons. Xaviera is an American artist based in New York. To say she works in many mediums is an understatement. Her complex body of work spans photography, performance, video, sound, sculpture and installation, and often disrupts the way that these mediums are perceived and understood. Her interdisciplinary practice is rigorously researched. I'm always struck by the fact that it's also extremely beautiful and expressionistic. It's a joyful act of creation. Her works are in major museum and private collections, including the Museum of Modern Art, the Guggenheim, the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, the Studio Museum in Harlem. She's lectured and been a visiting scholar at Yale University, Harvard, Columbia University, and the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Hello and welcome, Xaviera. We are extremely lucky to have your work in the Soho Art Collection, and we're about to add another piece to Shoreditch House in London in 2021. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Kate. And that was fabulous. Um, And it's so nice to talk to you. Xavier, your work's on display at Ludlow House in New York. And the piece we have is from a series made in 2009, I believe, where you take um, album covers from your personal collection and then you pose with that album cover in a really beautiful landscape and you hold the album cover over your face. So for me, they're this amazing fusion of still life and portraiture and landscape. Um, tell me about that series. For sure. Um, so I've always had records in my in my life. I, my parents always had a, you know, huge record album collections, vinyl records. And then I myself have about 4,000 vinyl no. records, if not more. Where do yeah. you keep them? <laughs> <laughs> I keep them. Um, you know, they are, they occupy a whole room inside of my studio wow. because I have, um, for a project that I did in 2004, I collected a lot of vintage jazz vinyl record albums. So I have, you know, and I also actually, in addition to all of those records, I also have like a huge cassette tape collection from my first jobs, meaning I use the money from my first jobs to purchase records and cassettes. So I have a huge record album collection. And I also used to DJ for a really long time and grew up when (laughs) I grew up when, you know, DJing was really foundational to the foundations of hip hop in the 80s and in New York. Mm. So learning art history, learning, you know, art history from thousands of years ago, you recognize people's desire to construct portraits, to think about how they're pictured. And I really wanted to kind of reflect on how sound artists pictured themselves and how that defined the times or generation that they were living in. And I'm also always interested in landscape in in the sublime form as it relates to landscape painting um, and landscape and later landscape photography. So I kind of wanted to think about and combine those two things, right? Like how people Mm. over time have pictured themselves, particularly in the 60s and 70s and 80s when record album production was one of the ways people both identified and also how they defined themselves, but also thinking about landscapes and how to kind of infuse those two types of conversations together. Mm. So that's that's where that comes from. I mean, they're, they're really um, incredible images, really striking. I was never really sure if it was you, if it was a self-portrait of you, because of course the, you're obscuring the face with the album cover. Um, but I was always struck by how beautiful these landscapes were. I mean, it's sort of a love letter to your record collection, but also a love letter to this notion of the American landscape maybe as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's that. I love the way you put that. You know, there is the notion of American landscape, and as there is the notion of the the English landscape, the mm. French countryside, uh, the sea, all of it. You know, they're all notions and constructions of our imagination of like what we think of as these as these spaces and the freedoms or not that um, are implied within their rendering. So. Um, you know, 
I've fallen in, I've, I'm always in love with landscape with the capital L, mm. but I also am very conflicted by landscape with the capital L because landscape obviously means our histories, our, our desires, our dreams, our, our rest, um, all of that. So I'm kind of always thinking about that and, and always, always thinking about the history of painting and how landscape has been rendered and what figures have been rendered on that landscape and in what ways. Mm. I said in the introduction that you're an artist who's truly interdisciplinary. And um, I think a work that would nicely demonstrate this for someone who's not that familiar with your practice is the very um, elegant um, body, ongoing body of work called, I think it's called Index Composition Photograph. So working mm. backwards, the viewer essentially on the wall in the gallery, they'll see a photograph. That's the sort of the object. But the that image is actually a sculpture, which is sort of on the body of a person. So we're seeing a real person and they're wearing something that you have crafted. We can't see their head. And they're, it's like a kind of a skirt, I suppose. And it's got this incredible accumulation of items like lace and Polaroids and um, there's the ones with feathers and fruit and, you know, baskets and all these kind of things on them. And so it's a something that's sculptural that you've made, which in turn feels a bit like a record of a performance potentially because the person's wearing that artwork. Um, mm. And then that, again, you're playing with the idea of still life and portraiture and obviously as well sort of deconstructing what the boundary between the photograph the and the, the sculpture is. And it, it strikes me that there isn't necessarily a hierarchy in your mind between mediums. No, that I love your questions. Um, no, there's... <laughs> sweet. There, I mean... I would say, you know, just to give respect to certain artists, like for instance, I really love the way that a painter or a draftsperson, someone like Carol Walker, for instance, mm. I really love how immediate the head to hand is. And there is something to, I mean, I love photography but it's a young medium if you think about the rest of the yeah. mediums. Like yeah. it's only a hundred and some odd years old, right? So photography is much more mechanical in a way that human beings are not as adept at it as I think we think we are because it's a new, it's a new media, really. Mm. Whereas with painting and drawing and sculpture even, I feel like they are, you know, closer to let's say our foundational way of existing. And I'm not saying like, you know, you manip you can you can get pigment out of, you know, many different natural materials. So for me, I don't want to say there's a hierarchy in my studio, but there is a respect that I've always had for for painting and for drawing and for line and for sound because those things are kind of inherent in our bodies in a way and they're not so far off from nature. Mm. Um, whereas photography has constructed us in a way, has made us, it has made itself become part of our nature in a way that I think sound, singing, painting, drawing, even dealing with color, those things are just, yes, they're manipulated, but if you grind them down to their natural selves, they kind of could have existed without that much human mm. manipulation. Yeah. yeah, that's such an incredible thought. I've never thought of photography in that way before. I mean, I've mm. always considered it in terms of, you know, the utilitarian aspect to it, that it has another life outside of fine art, which is why it's probably always struggled to find its place within the art world. And obviously the notion that it can be replicated and that it's machine made. But this distinction between the kind of the history of human creativity and what we might say, how can we get our head around the sense that one thing could be natural and one thing could be industrial. That's um, that's a really interesting way of coming at it. Yeah. And I mean, again, natural, I, you know, none of these terms really describe, no, I think we no. use, yeah, like we, we can't, it, we have a hard time, especially in 2020, really like coping with what is natural because so much is manipulated by our hands over so such a long period of time. So it's difficult to know what exactly is natural, but photography is definitely, if, if anything was natural, photography is definitely not natural, although it is becoming natural to us. So mm. we are evolving to be naturally with it, but it is not natural. It's chemicals. <laughs> I love the um, the phrase that you use when you talk about the, the your studio practice and you say that you work in cycles. 
Can you Mm. explain that a bit to me? Yeah, I think, you know, there was a really amazing story that one of my art history teachers, her name is Lori Dahlberg. She's at Bard College. Something that she said when I was studying with her in her classes, she said that Imogene Cunningham, the amazing photographer, would go to her barn in the summers and develop all of her film naked in <laughs> in the heat in the summer. And then she would shoot in the winters. And there's something about that really struck with me and stayed with me for like many, many years in that there was, you know, a time for one type of activity and then another time for another type of activity. And I think that like I do, I kind of tease that out into thinking about a studio practice. And there are times where um, photography becomes very central to my practice. And then there are other times where I need to explore textile or texture or color or writing or sound or choreography or whatever it is that will get out the ideas that I'm trying to process. So my work, you know, I, I at the same time, I understand that I I have a responsibility to these practices so that I'm not just jumping around and being willy-nilly about everything, but that I'm being very deliberate and careful. So I tend to spend time, like you would, like I always say, I feel like a shepherd to my practice, right? Like I I nudge different things at different times. And, And it does become cyclical in that Right now I'm thinking a lot about text works, but that's just because I spent a lot of time building large sculptural text works. But then, you know, I'm getting itchy to make photographs and that has to do with also um, some new upcoming projects that I'm doing. And and then there's an in, engagement with different types of photography that I have to think about, like, is it digital or is it a Polaroid or is it a formal four by five, which I'm really excited to start working on in a few weeks. And then... From there, I will probably rest and go into painting and text-based works and then probably get itchy or desire to make something large and monumental. And I'm thankful and very fortunate that I get to express myself in all of these different ways and I'm supported to do so, which Mm. is very particular and very unique, even though you might... There are a good amount of artists... But to be in a place where one can investigate this many types of ways and and find support and encouragement and nourishment is something that I know is very, it's very unique to not that many of us. Yeah. So this podcast is called How to Be an Artist. And um, we're thinking about you know what it takes to be an artist, what that might mean in this particular moment. But that's all quite big. And maybe so early on, we should start with something slightly less complicated. So uh, the question instead could be, you know, where did you get your start as an artist? I know that you've got an amazing um, educational history. You received your BFA from Bard College in 2004, and you did the Whitney Museum's Independent Study Program. And you also did a two-year program, which is a sort of actor training conservatory. Is that right? Yeah, wow. with the Maggie Flanagan studio. So so all of those things sound extraordinary, but I'm not going to ask you about any of those. I'm going to ask you about Okay. I'm going to ask you about going on a kind of pilgrimage with a Buddhist monk, which I think you're the only contemporary artist I know that has done such an undertaking to retrace the transatlantic slave trade. I'd love to know more about mm. that. Well, I I mean, I grew up Buddhist. My mother uh, was a practicing Buddhist. Um, and she practiced a form of Japanese Buddhism. Um, and so she's a unique one in that, you know, she kind of instilled certain things in me when I was younger. While I did grow up Buddhist, I also went to Catholic school. So I understood the kind of vastness of like faith in, in people's lives. Um, having someone who consistently, you know, practiced her Buddhist Buddhist worked with her Buddhist practice and then also understanding like you know the catholic kind of way and traditions um so for me the exploration of any kind of like faith based ideas was is it was has always been very comfortable to me um and while I don't practice any of 
of these um, current like faith-based um, practices, I have always been intrigued and, and, and interested in understanding what they are and how they operate. And so there was an opportunity, there was a group of monks, Japanese monks actually, who practiced a different form of Buddhism than what my mother did. But um, there was a group of Buddhist monks who were going on a pilgrimage which is what they do. They do walking pilgrimages. Like there are so many different types of Buddhism and there are so many different ways that Buddhist practice comes out. Some people chant, some people walk, some people do, you know, all kinds of things. But this order is a walking order. So that means that that part of their faith and part of their practice is to walk in meditation. And because they have, you know, people who are descendants of slavery within their faith-based community, um, you know, they got to talking about the history of the United States, the history of Europe, the history, you know, of mm. the Caribbean and of Africa. And, you know, they wanted to bring back the energy is what, how they phrased it, bring back, you know, the, the, the psychological, spiritual, mental energy of the trauma of enslavement here and take it back to Africa and have conversations along the way. So we, you know, the order walked for about a year and a half. And then I, I stayed and hitchhiked from South Africa to Ethiopia, but that's another part. Um, but the order walked from the Northern seaboard of the United States down to Key West. So that's a lot of walking yeah. eight hours per day. Wow. And then, um, went on to Cuba, Haiti, Jamaica, Trinidad, and then um, flew to, we flew to the Gambia and then walked down to Nigeria and then flew to South Africa and then the pilgrimage ended. So it was really thinking about these histories, this history, the history that makes up who I am as an individual and also the group of people that I come from who are all descendants of slavery here in the United States, which is a mixed race group of people mm. who were workers f for free for 300 plus, you know, almost 300 years. So obviously this would have a profound impact on you as a person, but beyond that, obviously into your practice. But how did you even begin to sort of unravel all of that, that feeling and that experience and that history? I mean, that is just a, a, a huge amount to process. Mm, I mean, I'm still unraveling it, you know, mm. like I'm still understanding the significance of it. I'm still understanding the significance of living communally with a group of people. I'm, I'm still understanding the significance of walking in meditation and, and, and contemplation for that long. I'm still understanding the significance of traveling as an American, you know, on foot, but through the Americas and what that means and what I saw. And then also thinking about all of the interactions that were had and understanding that, you know, I am very much an American person. Like when you, when you do that much traveling and then I travel also for my work and I have for a really long time, you understand what I've, I've started to understand more what I'm seeing as I see things in different countries and also on the streets. And what I mean by that is, for instance, I recognize myself as an American. I'm not, I'm not, you know, Caribbean from any different parts of the Caribbean. I'm not African from any of the, you know, 52 countries that make up Africa. I'm, parts of me are from there. I'm not English, even though my ancestors are that as well. But I cannot claim any of those things because I am deeply embedded in the American landscape, which is tied to the American narrative of chattel slavery. And so, you know, that is something that I understand very deeply because I understand the landscape and I understand what I'm looking at when I look at not only the landscape, but how we live within that landscape. Mm. And I think that that's something that I'm constantly unraveling and having to reconcile with um, with myself and also in conversations um, that I have with people and, 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 and sit with that. 
because that's it's profound to recognize yourself as being a part of a particular uh, narrative and borders um, here. Mm. So to go back to this um, notion of education, I mentioned before we talked about the pilgrimage, the you know the amazing um, arts education that you've had, and you've sort of now at this stage of your career gone back and become um, in, in a sort of professorial capacity, a teaching capacity to these institutions. And recently you were invited to Harvard as the inaugural Solomon Fellow in the Department of Art, Film and Visual Studies. And rather than sort of turn up and give... I don't know what the people do in these situations. Normally, I suppose, a, a lecture or a series of lectures. You came up with a really ambitious event on campus, which was called Malleable Forms Define Abolition. Um, can you tell me a bit about that and how it felt to engage with that kind of um, discourse in that particular institution, which, you know, you think of Harvard University, you're, you're thinking of something which is very much about the history of the United States and the history of oppression and and. And also, I suppose, mm. white, white supremacy, really. As much as we uphold it as a you know, bastion of great education, that's all there. That's really not lurking very far beneath the surface at all. And your work really tried to have a conversation about that and, and bring, it, bring it out, but not you necessarily bring it out. Ask the students and the, the other minds and thinkers there to share in it with you, as it were. Kate has really done her work, you all. <laughs> Yo, I'm sorry, but like folks do not ask me these kind of in-depth questions enough. And I appreciate that. I'm blushing. You know, I I, I, <laughs> I like to take out the word inaugural because mm. I'm, you know, this is what happens, especially with blackness or with women or with queer folks or who, you know, is whenever they do something that, Inaugural is a way, <laughs> I'm going to go as deep as your question went. Yeah. Inaugural is a way for capital and capitalism to consistently pretend like things haven't been said and done. And I am someone who works in traditions. I work in the tradition of art making. Um, I work in the tradition of of black radical thinking. I work in the tradition of activism and I work in the tradition of Americanism, really. I mean, and so I, I was given a fellowship by Harvard in, in addition to the teaching that I was doing there. And I want to be transparent to say that I was paid very well to teach at Harvard. And I advocated for that payment because as an artist, it is important for me to be, and, I, and I, it's something that I want younger artists to understand. It is important that you advocate and make sure that you are paid well for your labor because mm. art making is a job just like all other jobs. Like being a doctor, being a lawyer, being an administrator, you are an artist and therefore you should be paid for the labor that you do. So there's that. As far as define abolition, I, you know, Harvard it cannot be said enough that that institution, which is the oldest continuous running university in the United States, is a corporation. And it's also it has a huge endowment, which anyone can find out. And it's the seat. I mean, I've said this to Harvard itself, so I feel comfortable saying it is one of the seats of white supremacy in the United States. It's very it's it's very difficult to understand that without like doing some research and understanding that the university, the law school, all of the, you know, so much of it is tied to sugar plantation money in the Caribbean. People come the the first students who would come would come with enslaved people. You know, I mean, slavery was not a beautiful, like, fun experience. These were people forced to labor. And so Harvard's fortune is tied to the enslavement of, you know, Black Americans. And when you go to Cambridge, when you teach there, when, you, when you're inside of the institution, and the institution has so many resources, so many buildings, and so much respect throughout the world, you do not get a packet that helps you to understand what this what this place is. And you also don't get an understanding of what is going on outside of Cambridge, which is there's any newspaper article will tell you. The average, I mean, the Boston Globe wrote an article about this. The average black person in Boston's net worth is $5. 
compared the median net worth is $5 compared to the median net worth of a white family or person is about $200,000. There's a problem there. Mm. There's a problem with an institution with that much of an endowment having a community right next to it who it owes a debt to with that much disenfranchisement. You cannot, you cannot think, it, it almost, your mind can't even grasp mm. that that actually exists. And therefore, how do you have so many people passing through that institution and that problem not being solved in that particular community? That is how you understand the inner workings of the United States and the inner workings of that university and the care that is not being given to people in this country in particular, but particularly Black people who descend from slavery. And all of this is oftentimes figured out at Harvard. So how does, I'm just, how does that work? How does it work? that you have an institution that is founded on so much deep learning with the best minds coming from all over the world, with the largest endowment in the country, yet you have so much disenfranchisement in Boston in particular, but then particularly with the black people who, whose ancestors probably either came with, 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 with you know, the first work, the first students at Harvard or who who have lived in proximity to that institution. And Boston is not that big. Mm. So we have to recognize the institutions that we uphold and do some further investigation as to what, what's going on here. Why does it look like this? And then demand more of it. And I think Define Abolition was one of those one of those projects where I tried to demand more of the institution. Now, that being said, I also am complicit because I took money from the institution because I live in a capitalist country that doesn't allow, you know, there, we don't even have the best social network, social systems here, as you guys all probably have seen with COVID and all of that. So, you know, I did take the money, but I also worked to criticize the institution simultaneously. So... That was the work, and my students were engaged. I had uh, about 16 other thinkers who were engaged and working and writing and thinking about how to talk about abolition, how to talk about institutional change, how to talk about and do something about white supremacy, how to talk about joy, pleasure, creativity, contemplation, all of it. We did it all, and, you know, it's, it's, it's still ongoing in different ways. That's incredible. I um, I really, I, I completely sympathise with your position there. We sort of, I suppose your work is very good for anyone who needs to understand a, the way that art can navigate and reveal sort of systemic problems while also having to recognise that one has to sit with inside the system, which is actually a sort of a tale as old as time in an art historical sense. Like if you think about the futurists, mm. for example, the futurists were mm. talking about like, let's destroy the past, let's destroy the museums, let's chuck out the paintings, you know, let's get rid of all the things in the gilded frames, get rid of bronze. We can't have old art. Everything has to be new. But of course, there were artists and they were still showing in the same galleries. They were still showing in the same museums. They were making paintings. They were just making them supposedly so futuristic. And I think we, we, we have this thing, don't we, that we're so, um, you know, great minds and great thinkers want to be able to see outside of the system. But in order to be able to have those conversations and those dialogues with those students and those writers, you, you can't sit in a room by yourself doing it. You, you actually do need to be part of um, some kind of discourse Otherwise, you're you're what you're a kind of theoretical head in a jar. It's um, and I think that's really come to the fore so much this year, and we've all been grappling with things where we realize on a daily basis we're having to swallow swallow big. You know, me personally, I'm talking about swallow mouthfuls of hypocrisy. You know, when you're when actually your intentions mm. are really you think well directed, but mm. we're all part of the system. Yeah, we're definitely all part of the system. But the thing is, is that. I think, you know, when we talk about the system and when we talk about, you know, these structures, we have to talk about, you know, there's different people acting inside of the system, right? There's, there's activists that are pushing the system to change. Then there's like, 
academics and thinkers who, and all these things are malleable, like different people go in and out of like their positions, right? Not all, but some, but there are people on ground who are saying, no, enough is enough. Like we cannot, like we have to defund, refund, defund, uh, repair, um, make whole, you know, abolish, which means change these systems so that they don't exist in the same way anymore. Everyone is working in those systems. I mean, the, the, the most radical thinkers are still either university professors or they are, you know, living off of the land. I mean, all of it, even if you're living off of the land, you're living in a part of this system. Mm. But there are different actors who have to play different roles at different times in order to make the system shift. And I think that it's incumbent upon us to you know, understand all of the different conversations that are being happen ha, are, that are happening, and then figure out where we personally pos- learn as much as we can, and then where do we sit inside of you know some of the more quote unquote extreme positions that are talking about how our collective societies live, and then we have to sit with where do we want to advocate. All of us in my opinion, should have some some compass as to how we want to see our worlds ex- lived in, how mm. we want to see our communities lived in. And if you are able to get your hands on your community's budget and you understand, no, I don't want $3 million, for instance, put into police officers while 500000 is put into schools. No, I do not want that. I want the inverse of that. I want... $3 million to be put into the hands of teachers and schools. And I want like about 500000 to be put into policing. And I want those police officers to have an understanding of my community. And then I might not even want to have police officers anymore. I might want to use those resources for different other things to sustain my community. You know, I mean, and 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 so I think it's like we have to continuously position ourselves in conversation with the activists who might be, quote, unquote, the extreme that pushes the center and then that pushes the left or right. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's an ecosystem that we're all involved in. Someone told me, a friend of mine who's, who's you know, has resources said, no money is clean. And I understand that. And it, it you know, that hit me hard. Like mm-hmm. I was like, oh, it's true. None of it's, but how can we work towards building societies and, 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 and institutions that are taking care of all workers so that the highest paid worker within an ecosystem isn't paid exorbitantly against the lowest paid worker. That just, you know, and certain things like social welfare and healthcare and home and housing and water and all these things where the United States in a crazy way will let you fall very, very, very far beyond what is acceptable as standard living in most other countries. And that's, that's, that's what you're seeing on ground mm. when you're seeing the protests in the United States. What you're seeing are people saying, we don't want to fall this far through the cracks because the highest paid person in this country makes so much money at the expense of the lowest paid workers in their country, in their corporation, in their city, and so, I mean, yes, we're all complicit, but we have to push to equalize the resources that are available um, so that they benefit workers, laborers to a better and greater degree than what they are now, especially here in the United States, which mm. you guys are watching us <laughs> collapse under this much pressure. I um I wanted to read something, if you don't mind, which you said in March 2020. So before the summer that we've had, you were speaking to the Brooklyn Rail and you said, the pressure of oppression and suppression has built up in the United States and it can't, can't really hold any longer. I don't know if white people comprehend that their very privileges rest on the pressure felt by the others. 
felt by others. This pressure has been maintained by physical, legal and violent forces across the spectrum of our existence here. And then what I thought was interesting is that you then described the exhibition that you were um, about to open, which I, I suspect was then delayed because of um, uh, COVID. And, uh, um, but you said that your exhibition was sort of one way to reduce the pressure just a little bit in the sense that you had this fantastic turn of phrase that art somehow was sort of a, a pressure valve for people. And I think we often mm. talk about art as being like a political tool or a weapon in the face of all of these problems. But actually, I thought that your way of putting it was so much more poetic, which was like a, a pressure valve. Some pressure had to be let off. And I thought, A, what you said was extremely prescient, given what happened um, shortly afterwards. And I also wanted to talk about that idea of art, not maybe not necessarily being a political weapon, which I'm never really comfortable with that phrase, but this idea of a release valve, which I thought was so fascinating. I mean, it's definitely a release valve for me because <laughs> I get to, <laughs> I get to um, put out, you know, like like any like athletes, like you know, singers or dancers, you know, everyone has their different ways of letting out steam when the pressure gets too high. But I think, you know, for me, art making has been the the totality of my practice has been a, a you know a release valve because I get to. Um, at this point, engage with really heavy topics, but topics that I feel like have um, logical answers. There are people, you know, especially in the United States, there's no mystery to how this place was constructed. And, you know, you know, the, the, the majority of the population is white in the United States. It's 70% approximately. Um, black Americans who descend from slavery are about probably like 13%. You have, you know, Latinx populations. You have the First Nations populations. All these populations um, are definitely, the, in terms of numbers, not as, as substantial as the white population who's come from all different parts of the world to claim this idea of whiteness um, and then use that to oppress. So you have to look at, you know, both the conditions of the majority population and the conditions of the quote unquote minority population and understand how they're living and what is the difference between them. And what you find in the United States is the difference is very vast. The United States was built to, um, to, to enlarge the dreams of white people in across the world, really. I mean, every, and, and then those people who want, who identify with the white um, power structures and their different communities that come here. So, you know, it's it's very. Um, there are problems that can be solved in the United States if a white people as a whole collective project made it their mission to understand um, the history of this country uh, as it is told throughout the records of this country. This the United States is. You know, it's not that big of a mystery. Like all of the things that. Um, have been coming up and all of the topics that um, have been addressed, especially as it relates to white supremacy, um, it's not a mystery. It's all recorded. Like, it's not that difficult to understand. And it's also not that difficult to understand because the United States has kept records and so has Great Britain and so has parts of Africa. Uh, you know, it's not that difficult to understand that slavery did happen here for almost 300 years. And then after that, you had Jim Crow, you had uh, state-sanctioned violence and lynching, and all of that that led to the conditions that we live within now, where you have the, the majority of population, which is white, have control of most of the resources, most of the natural materials, most of the financial ability, most of the land, most of the homes, most of everything, stores, everything, the, the, the textiles, everything, the manufacturing, you have a majority population that literally controls everything. And the minority, quote unquote, minority populations, black folks, you know, Latinx people, indigenous populations really don't have the resources that they need. 
And you have to question, well, why is that? Why why is that? And why has it been like this for for generations and upon generations to the point where, for instance, in San Francisco you have, um, and in Los Angeles you have Skid Row uh, and you have tent cities where you have about 200,000 you know, homeless people just living literally on the streets. And a lot of them are black men. Or you have one of the most incarcerated countries in the world. And most of those people, when you do it statistically, are black men. I mean, disproportionately black men. That is, there's something inherently wrong with the system. And there's something that needs to be fixed. And it really falls on white Americans in particular to understand what exactly is going on in their cities, in their rural areas, in their own homes, and also try to work really hard to understand and then work to change those systems. There's no other way because a minority population, and when I say minority, I mean by population, Mm. a minority group by population, as in 14%, cannot overthrow or shift or change 70% of the population. You know, it's going to take the white majority really, really digging deep into their souls and spirits and minds and resources and deciding that, going back to what you said, they want to let the pressure out and they don't want to have a society that that is so disproportionately um, oppressive to black people who descend from slaves in particular, First Nations people whose land it is that we are on, and people whose countries have moved here after the fact because the United States as an empire builder has destabilized their countries. This stuff is like so easy to understand because there are so many professors and so many books and so much history recorded that it doesn't take that long to understand this. And then you have to decide morally, both individually and collectively, what you're going to do with the problems that you now find yourself in, which are easily seen when you look on the news or you go into any major city, suburb, or rural landscape. Mm. Your your work is um, dealing with these these huge ideas and you often find... To what to me seem like extremely beautiful expressionistic ways of processing ideas, and you were just touching upon then you know this this history is not is not hiding you know this is all kind of hiding in plain sight this is just you know there even in when we use that word American landscape, we both know there's a subtext there even even we've never spoken about mm. that with each other before we understand that that kind of that word has a, a this meaning just lying just beneath the surface, and you've you know you've done things like reimagine what um African Americans would have made if they had been, you know, allowed to have the the freedom and the kind of generational security to be to be artisans, to be creators. You've made these extraordinary objects as part of your exhibition um, a couple of years ago. These amazing things from your imagination, and it's interesting to me that fusion of something which is historical, which is fact, which is archive, which is rigorous, but then on the flip side as sort of Xavier taking what feels like a really um, a strident imaginative approach to making expressionistic work. And I love the combination of those two things in your work. And those works in that Sundown exhibition in 2008, you know, the the, the works where you said, these are, these are objects made by me, but they should have been made for hundreds of years. Where do you even begin to think what that might look like? I mean, I've spent, I mean, this is really, I don't know if this will surprise you, but I've actually been to a lot of the Soho houses across the world. Not all of them, but a good amount of them. Mm. Um, I live with a designer. I love design. I look at it all the time. I love the history of objects. I love furniture design, textile design, jewelry design. I mean, get I guess I love, you know, human expression in all of its different forms. And so, uh, you know, I mean, if I think about Soho House, for instance, 
I mean, the design, I actually own objects that I've ordered from Soho Home, <laughs> you know, because I, you know, and my partner and I were always like, this is so well done. This is so well made. This is so gorgeous. You know, um, I want my whole house to, you know, like most of us want our houses to look like it's, you know, part of the Soho House brand because the design is tight, you know, it's beautiful. And, um, you know, so if let's say, for instance, I'm look, I'm at Soho House and I'm dreaming and I start like, you know, I get my my, you know, tea and my, you know, beautiful cups and bowls and all these things. And I'm having my salad. And then, you know, I start to think about, OK, well, who made these? You know, where are these made? Right. And then I have to think about where I am. Let's say I'm in, you know, in Brooklyn or a Dumbo House or, you know, wherever. And then I start to think like, wait, I can't where's, I can't go to, where's the black American artisanal makers that have been around for like two, 300 years and you can go to them and be like, I want this object in the tradition of your forefathers. Mm. There are, and you know, this is the thing with the United States. You can't do it. You can't go backwards like that because slavery the institution where you had laborers working for free, literally building the country by hand, like built that White House that you see in the news, um, built it by hand, built all of the structures pretty much, built the roads, cleared the land, did all of this, built the furniture. You, but you have no, I, Thomas Jefferson gets credit for what his enslaved workers did. George Washington gets credit for what his enslaved workers did. These mixed race people who, you know, were building these these the dreams of this, you know, aristocracy, this 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 white nation. It's insane, and, and you don't even. There's no. There's some record, of course, and we know, but it'll say like, you know, built by an enslaved person. I don't know the name. I don't know if it was Jim. Jim John from, you know, Plymouth, Georgia, who's, you know, has a two, who built it, you know, and whose, whose descendants are still building in the same way. We've lost, you know, as much knowledge as the United States has, we've also lost individual craftsmanship. And so I'm always thinking about that. I mean, that is so much a part of my work. Like, recovering narratives and understanding how much memory and how much, um, for a country that knows so much about itself and for a country that is as young as it is in terms of European contact with it, um, you know, it, it slaves, enslaved people were considered property. So they, they didn't get to own the fruits of their labor, which is why, you know, talking about releasing the valve, which is why I talk about reparations so much, because at this point, what you have is, you know, the majority population um, having all the resources still to this day from slavery, right? Basically floating in the country in different forms. And you have, you know, those that were enslaved, their descendants um, with with nothing comparatively in, in you know no ownership no no we have a cultural lineage but we don't have material wealth as a group and that's a problem because we built we actually physically our ancestors physically built the country and you can figure out whose ancestors were descendants of slaves and whose ancestors may have, may have moved here from different parts of the continent of Africa or the Caribbean, you know, maybe a hundred years ago or so. And you can figure out, okay, well, these people are kind of owed a debt from the United States government because their ancestors literally built the country. Mm. And so when I think about making objects, I think about that history and I also think about what I love though also. Like I I even though I've been vegan for many years, I still touch fur. I still think about um leathers. I love feeling wools and um you know precious jewels and all kinds of things that my ancestors my ancestor group really 
hasn't been able to play with or luxuriate in or or be enamored by as a group because mm. we've been laborers here the whole time. And so you're so, you're sort of reimagining what what could have been or what might have been made. And I, what I think is so fascinating about those works is they're a kind of strange twist on time because they belong as a part of a historical narrative in the sense that they are absent or that they are underrepresented or that there's something that we're not addressing. But they also kind of belong to the moment because they're yours, but they also, in a way, feel like they belong to the future. In in because For me, anyway, because they feel so hopeful and expressionistic and joyful that I feel like there's a sort of they have their own place suddenly. So they're a strange object because they are just one thing, but at the same time, they're a, a strange sort of time vortex, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. I love that. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was also interested, I mean, I, I know I can. I know now that you love design and I'm a big fan of what is a, is a dirty word sometimes in the art world, which is craft. You know, we don't like this word craft because mm. we think, oh, it's not fine art you know you think about the great feminists who tried to reclaim what was craft and put it back into the fine art sphere because women for so long had not been allowed to make work in um in the traditional way that we recognize you know the great canon of art history and so they were relegated to what everyone considered women's work craft you know and the first mm. wave feminists tried to bring that back into art history to give it a, a a place and thankfully i think that those distinctions and boundaries are shifting you know i see so many great artists working with what you know 30 years ago, 40 years ago would have been craft and not considered high art, fine art. Um, but it seems to me that there's such a tactility to your work. You love texture, you love colour. You know, the photographs I was talking about earlier on with the extraordinary kind of sculptural skirts that you make, these objects that you're making, imagining, reimagining a kind of revisionist history where African-American people were able to express themselves creatively in a continuous fashion because they weren't oppressed. Mm. All of these things, they've got amazing textures and colours to them. And actually an entire exhibition of yours will always look fantastically interesting and full of different details and layers. And I'm really curious about your attitude toward craft. And I suppose there is a, that thing as well of thinking about craft as being other and maybe that there are, you know, indigenous crafts and, you know, in inverted commas, which have also been left out of art history. Mm, love these questions. Um... I love crap. I'm not. I, I love it all. Mm, I'm serious. Like, and, <laughs> <Me too>. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it's all, you know, my friend Catherine, she's always showing me her um, with the pottery wheel and she's always showing me like the mistakes. And I'm always like, oh, I want that. Like, I literally have so much of her stuff, like her mistakes, because the craft, the I just love the idea of of, of human beings, like using their time and, and imbuing their time, um, the material with time and, and, and meaning and, and when it was. And so, I don't know, for me, I don't really have those distinctions. Like I understand, I do love working in a tradition in a crazy way. Like I love the idea of art history and, 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 and the idea of working within a tradition. And definitely, you know, I understand Western art history probably the most because that's the one that I've been trained and, and taught. And I, and I love that idea um, of working in that tradition, but I also really love the tradition of craft and working through craft and thinking about craft and thinking how can I get closer to craft sometimes. So I think um, I don't have those distinctions. I really just try to make the best work that I can to express the ideas that I'm trying to mm. um, focus on. And if it's if it's if it's a craft work, quote unquote, if it's like a if it's um, something that people would deem crafty, so be it. You know, if it's something that is high art, if you want to say, so be it. Mm. Like I, I'm, I'm in it. I'm in it for all of the expression, all of the ways that human beings have expressed themselves. I want to speak the languages right alongside of them. Mm. So let me ask you this question then. Um, let's do it. How to be an artist? How, how does one go about being an artist? How, uh, how do you take that question? And what do you think it means today to be an artist? I, I think there's almost been an expectation this year that artists somehow come up with answers because we're in a really, really, really tough global situation. 
And I think artists have felt that people have turned to them and said, well, can you just sort of like come up with a creative solution for dealing with all of these very difficult social, economical, political, medical, you know, intellectual problems? And artists are like, what? Why am I suddenly being called upon to, to, uh, to answer all these um, questions? I think there's a, the, we had this mythology of the artist that you touched upon earlier on, that it's not like a real job. Um, but it is a real job and it, it, it can be a calling, but it's also a, it's a job. It's a um, it's a profession. Um, and I'm curious about your take on that, you know, how to, how to be an artist and how to be an artist right now. Mm. Well, I think, you know, first going to one part of your, what you were saying, people keep asking artists to, to solve or think through these problems. But my, my question or my concern is you've asked the question, we, you know, most of the people on ground, you know, if you want to talk about, you know, Black Lives Matter or these types of movements, most of those people on ground, a lot of them are artists and they're telling you what they need. They're telling you what we want you to do is shift, change, abolish, defund. We want you to invest, repair, restore. We want you to take care. We want you to equalize. We want you to go beyond equalizing. I mean, what I'm trying to say is that Artists have been, artists are doing their work, which is, you know, making art objects and, um, or performances or, you know, mystical other things that are what artists do. Um, we, we've been, we've been doing our work and we're also, you know, a lot of us, not all of us, but a lot of us are also saying we need things to change. And it's up to institutions, individuals, governments to listen to what we say. Artists should be involved in every aspect and facet of governmental, in my opinion, in of governmental um, ruling and structures. Because artists, we, 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 we train ourselves to think outside of the box, mm-hmm. really simply. We, we do it over time. Our, how to be an artist is, is to really think of it from my perspective is to really think of it as a job not and also it's a wonderful job it's a job that gives so much back to you it's a conversation but the commitment to it is the same as if you were running an institution or you were uh, attending to people inside of an emergency room what i mean to say is that it requires that much commitment to it it requires that much focused on it. It requires an understanding of the history involved with it. It requires, you know, you speaking to other people, even if it's in your head, you know, you have, it's a conversation. So, you know, it it takes a lot. And I also think there's an emotional component, like what, what turns you on, what stirs your soul, whether it be away or towards, and I think it's something that it's a practice. It's something that has to happen over long periods of time um, in order for it to start to, you know, give back to you in the ways that you might think. But it takes time. Mm. I do believe that like any other career, path, job, profession, calling, it, you know, it takes time for the for the for the wheels to spin clear and for you to really find your way, but you have to let it take the time. It's not going to happen overnight. So that's one way to be an artist. Um, I think also just very practically asking for what you need is another way to be an artist, meaning I don't believe actually in the starving artist narrative. Artists have to be taken care of financially. Like it's, I think of artists akin to spiritual, um, like for instance, priests or monks or nuns, right? Like these people are taken care of by their communities. And in some ways, artists are in that same situation in that they are, we are paid to think and contemplate and construct anew. And we have to be taken care of by our communities. So there's a way to um, ask for care and also ask for resources. And beyond that, not only is it 
incumbent on the artist to ask those things. It's also incumbent on the community to deliver those things to the artist. So if you as an individual are interested in supporting artists, most of the time artists need resources. So it's really wonderful if you find an artist in your community that you, whatever you can do, you support them with resources so that they can do the work that they want to do. Yeah, I can speak to that as personal experience. The next best thing, I think, to being an artist is being able to be with artists and lend any support you can. I get so much out of it, and I got so much out of talking to you, Zavarero Simmons. Thanks so much for chatting with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Kate. Thank you so much. Thank you.